Will you please sing it? I wonder how much you value the Bible and how much you read it. I was struck by a little anecdote in the mission update from CMS recently. It tells of a, a new believer in Jesus from an Arab background. She has to keep her faith a secret, reading the Bible a few pages at a time before sealing the pages in a plastic bag and hiding them in the toilet system. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, we thank you that we have the freedom to meet together in your name. We have the freedom to read your word. And we pray that you would help us to use that well this morning. Speak to us by your spirit through your word to teach us things we need to know, to remind us of things we may have forgotten, and help us through your word to live more effectively in your service. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Each week in the Church Times, they have a back page interview. One of the regular questions is, what's your favorite part of the Bible? I'd have to say that 2 Peter chapter 2 is not my favorite part of the Bible. But um, we're following this series through looking at the second letter of Peter, uh, Peter to his uh, young believers. And um, it's a difficult and challenging passage hard to understand and hard to accept in some, in some parts, but um, many people find that strong teaching about judgment hard to square with their understanding of a God of love. But it's here, and if we believe the Bible to be God's inspired word for us, we have to see what, it, what sense we can make of it, and as always, to try to see it in its context. It's fairly obvious that chapter two follows from chapter 1. The thrust of chapter 1, as we were thinking last week, is hold on to the truth. In verse 12 of chapter, chapter 1, Peter writes, I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them, and are firmly established in the truth you now have. He reminded them that he and the other apostles had been eyewitnesses of what Jesus said and did. Their teaching had the authority of authenticity because they were eyewitnesses. And before them the prophets of the Old Testament had been inspired by the Holy Spirit. But here in chapter 2, Peter reminds them in verse 1, there were also false prophets just as there will be false teachers among you. So the thrust of this chapter 2 in 2 Peter is beware false prophets. There have been false prophets the Old Testament has plenty of examples of them. And there will be false teachers, Peter tells them. The pattern continues then and now. We shouldn't be surprised, we heard in the Gospel reading, Jesus said, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. And in chapter 24 of Matthew, Jesus warned them, false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. So these false teachers, what are their characteristics? What should Peter's readers, what should we look out for? Three things Peter picks out. 
Firstly, greed. In verse 3, in their greed, these teachers would exploit you with stories they've made up. And verse 14 says they're experts in greed. Their motivation is their own self-enhancement, their own self-satisfaction. They're in it to line their own pockets, to boost their own egos and their bank balances, to finance a lavish lifestyle. We saw something of that in 2 Timothy when we were looking at that a few months ago. It was said of the late David Watson that he bought most of his clothes from charity shops. Why not? When John Stott died last summer, a lot of things were written about him. One comment was that he lived all his life in a very modest flat. Lives not marked by greed. But greed is one of the characteristics of the false teachers that Peter picks out. And secondly, a wild lifestyle. Verse 13, they carouse They carouse in broad daylight, he writes. The Oxford Dictionary defines carouse as drink alcohol and enjoy oneself with others in a noisy, lively way. Well, Jesus enjoyed a good party, but I can't imagine Jesus carousing in the way we normally use that word. Isaiah wrote of his own day that priests and prophets stagger from beer and are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer, they stagger when seeing visions, they stumble when rendering decisions. So the greed, a wild lifestyle. They're also adulterous, Peter says in verse 14. They have eyes full of adultery. Or literally, they have eyes which are full of an adulteress. William Barclay suggests that a possible rendering is that they see a possible woman, a po- sorry, a possible adulteress in every woman. They have that sort of mindset. It's a powerful temptation. And many ministers have been brought down because opportunities have presented themselves. Billy Graham would never be alone in a room with a woman to safeguard his reputation. So there should be no suggestion of any improper relationships. This is nothing new. Jeremiah comments on the situation in his day in chapter 23. Among the prophets of Jerusalem, I've seen something horrible. They commit adultery and live a lie. They strengthen hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his wickedness. These are the prophets whereas their lives should have been a challenge and a positive example, in practice their example encouraged people to satisfy their own lusts. And Peter comments in verse 14, they seduce the unstable. If those are their characteristics, what are their teachings? Peter describes in in verse 1 as destructive heresies. Heresy comes from a Greek word meaning to choose, and it's not necessarily wrong to make choices. I looked at my Oxford Dictionary again, and heresy is belief or opinion contrary to orthodox, religious, especially Christian doctrine, opinion profoundly at odds with what is generally accepted. It's interesting that in Acts 24, St. Paul is described as a ringleader of the Nazarene, in the New International Version, translated as sect. In the Greek, it's a heresy 
the Nazarene heresy because Paul, this Christian leader, was not an Orthodox Jew, didn't follow the Roman religions, he did something, something different and he was regarded as a heretic. To quote William Barclay again, before the coming of Jesus there was no such thing as a definite God-given truth. A man was presented with a number of alternatives, any of which he might choose honestly to, to believe. But with the coming of Jesus, God's truth came to men, and men had either to accept or reject that truth. These were destructive heresies that were being propounded. There were stories that they've made up, he describes them as in verse 2. We might think of some religious, some religion started in the last couple of hundred years. Christian Science, founded by Mary Baker Eddy. Mormons, founded by Joseph Smith. Jehovah's Witnesses, begun by Charles Taylor Russell. Scientology, founded by L. Ron Hubbard. You may think of others. Which are really based on stories they've made up. Their destructive heresies, also empty teachings. Peter uses two rather graphic images in verses 17 and 18. Imagine a traveler longing for a refreshing drink who comes to a spring and finds that it's dry. Or imagine a farmer in an arid landscape longing for rain to water his crops and the cloud he sees is just a mist blown by the wind. Empty teachings with these false teachers. And thirdly, they promise freedom. Freedom from rules and conventions, but they themselves are slaves to an addictive lifestyle marked by greed and lust. And fundamental to all this is that they deny the Sovereign Lord in verse 1, the Sovereign Lord who bought them. It isn't clear whether Peter means that they deny the Lordship of Christ, though that is clearly true, or that they, they deny the efficacy of the sacrifice of the Lord who bought them, or even the need for that sacrifice. But whichever interpretation you put on it, they were denying the Lord. So what of their future, these false teachers? Peter describes it in verse 1 as swift destruction. It wasn't only that their teachings, these stories they've made up, were destructive and damaging for their hearers, but they brought destruction on themselves. And in verse 3, Peter mentions condemnation and destruction. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. The negative effects on the false teachers would be fairly immediate, Peter suggests. And their teachings and the lifestyle brought them into a desperate situation. We see in verses 20 and 21. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred commandment that was passed on to them. That may raise a problem in your minds. Is it possible to fall away from grace? We have wonderful passages of reassurance 
as for example in John chapter 10 when Jesus speaks of himself as the good shepherd. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. A passage I've often used over the years in situations of anxiety, illness, bereavement, even facing death. Or Romans chapter 8, Paul writes, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How can we square what Peter writes with those wonderful reassurances? Well, it is a puzzle. It's a problem. It's a problem that the Apostle John faced when he wrote his first epistle. And he concluded in verse 19 of chapter 2 about the false teachers of his day and his situation. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Peter points to three Old Testament examples as warnings of the reality of judgment. In verse 4 he refers to angels, referring back to the original story in Genesis chapter 6. And that itself is not a straightforward passage in it at all. But one, one interpretation is that angels came to earth and seduced mortal women. The result of this lustful union was the race of, of giants, and through them wickedness came upon the earth. There are links to the book of Enoch in the Apocrypha. Secondly, he mentions the flood. Verse 5, he did not, did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people. And then in verse 6, Sodom and Gomorrah, he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Dire warnings. It's teaching that in our modern age, many find it hard to accept. But this teaching is not unique to this part of the Bible. But it's not all doom and gloom. It isn't all darkness and destruction. We can finish, I'm glad to say, on a positive and cheerful note. Not to deny this aspect of it, but to balance it. Verses 4 to 10 in 2 Peter 2 are really one long sentence. So if God did not spare angels, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and if he rescued Lot, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from trials. He protected Noah and his family. He rescued Lot and his family. And we can sing as we often do, there is a redeemer. Jesus, God's own son. In verse 1, Peter refers to the sovereign Lord who bought us. We can rejoice in that. False teaching is not only destructive, fundamentally it's demonic, I believe. So it's essential that young Christians are taught and grounded in biblical truth. They have firm foundations. That means it's important that we should pray 
for the Sunday school, the Sunday club, for Big Fish, for the bridge. And these weeks of summer activities, we should pray for camps and house parties that many are involved in around the country. And I'm pleased that as a parish, we support Stephen Floor Taylor in their work at Bangkok Bible Seminary, training and teaching ministers and church leaders as they build up the young and growing church in Thailand. I was thrilled to read a little while ago now that in the decade from 2000, 1,000 new churches were, built, were planted in Thailand. Wonderful growth, but they're young Christians. They need teaching, and Bangkok Bible Seminaries trying to meet, and there are other Bible colleges too, trying to meet that need. And I'm pleased that we support the CMS Timothy Project, which tra trains indigenous church leaders in India, and Nepal, and parts of Africa. And of course, Matt and Amy Dixon, building the Sangha Sangha Retreat House and Conference Center in Tanzania, which will further develop the work of the Bible Institute in that part of Tanzania. They and we worship and serve the sovereign Lord who bought us. We need to make sure that our own foundations are secure. We need to grapple with some of these difficult passages in God's word and pray that by his spirit he'll lead us to understand, apply and obey what he teaches us. Let us pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word to us. We thank you for your spirit and his work in us and through us, in and through your word too. So help us as we grow in our, in our understanding to grow in our commitment to and to follow you and serve you faithfully. For Jesus' sake, amen. <laughs>